Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever send money abroad? Don't use a bank or PayPal. That's like going to McDonald's for a salad. They have it, but other people do it way better. Instead, use TransferWise. TransferWise always has a great exchange rate and a super low fee, which is probably why they already have over 4 million customers. And their borderless accounts let you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert them whenever you like. Test it out for free at transferwise.com slash Chang or download the app today. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is my close, close friend, almost dare say sister, the amazingly talented chef Christina Tosi of Milk Bar. We have known each other since 2006, and if you listen to this, you'll probably notice that we talk to each other like we're siblings, and we treat each other like siblings, and oftentimes with siblings. There is the very good and the very bad, and we have gone through all of it, and we have pushed each other to be better. Sometimes I feel like we've pushed each other to be worse, but throughout it all, I think we there's a genuine admiration and respect. She's a couple years younger than me. She grew up in the same neighborhood of Northern Virginia. She's way smarter <laughs> and talented than me, but I've always treated her like an equal. I've always treated her as someone that has an immense amount of talent and insight to making great food and to just great ideas. But, you know, just talking to her in this fashion of a podcast is just dawned on me because we just recorded this with her and she's left to go back to work was how much it sounds like we are brother and sister. And I know a lot of people say that, but we have had a very long relationship and we have spent so many hours together, so many days that in some ways I think we're closer than many siblings could be. And I couldn't be more proud of her, what she's done and what she's created. I really genuinely believe that we wouldn't be here when I say we Momofuku would not be around without her help. I don't know if she gets enough credit for that, both in how she has systemized a lot of our health, New York City health department stuff through the culture She is a force of nature. I've always said that about her in the best possible ways. And she has impressed her sort of will on Momofuku. And she's now obviously has her own empire growing and her own team and everything. But so much of what Momofuku is today is because of the great work and camaraderie we've had since 2006. She's helped me realize things about myself and about how I lead and about how I cook I wouldn't have realized before. And she is one of the most unique individuals I have ever worked with. Christina is incredibly independent, and I say stubborn in the best way possible. She has a remarkable ability to propel herself in ways and to convince herself of ways where I think most people couldn't see something. And she has an incredible intellect. She has, I swear to fucking God, an unmatched work ethic. I don't know of anyone that has worked more diligently and more thoroughly than Christina Tosi. And it's not a surprise to me that she's gotten all the accolades and awards and success because there's very, very few people that I can ever think of that are not only super talented, but have that superior work ethic. And in so many ways, if you're thinking about sports, 
she's one of those athletes that constantly is trying to get better and practice their craft. And that their work ethic matches their talent. And she's a, a genuinely rare thing in my business because I've never worked with anything like her. And I've been blessed to be able to work with her because we have pushed and pulled each other to grow. And I was excited to talk to her about things and stories that might seem too inside baseball. And for the brevity of our conversation, because even though it's about two hours and we're going to break it up into two podcasts, we could have kept on talking forever because there's so many stories that obviously get edited out or don't make the newspaper or TV. There's stories that only I know and Christina knows that I haven't even told anyone or we haven't spoken about in years. So there's a lot of nostalgia there she's still opening a restaurant. So she is here in Los Angeles. She's opening up a new milk bar flagship at 7150 Melrose. It's near Pink's. It's in the Fairfax area of Los Angeles. And I'm excited to check it out because she's growing and she is at a level where she's realized all the mistakes and growing pains. And she's at a point in her career where I think there's a sense of fearlessness again that is so important because you sort of have to come full circle and uh, start off by talking about how she started Milk Bar and why she's sort of at the place that she's at and the difficulties of being a leader and all the mistakes that we've made and she's made and a lot of the her journey of being a cook in New York City, working for David Boulay, Wiley Dufresne with Sam Mason, Alex Dupac. And if you hear these names and you're not familiar, Google it. They're really important chefs that have changed gastronomy, at least in America. I hate to use the word really, really a lot, but that's just how I feel about some of the people she's worked for and the people that she's helped sort of nurture over the years. There's been a lot of great talent that Christina's helped curate herself and to grow. So I'm thrilled for her. I'm excited about Milk Bar. You know, she's someone that's in really important in my life, my professional career, and I definitely consider her my sister, my family, and we have that relationship. And if it sounds like it, it's because it is. Without further ado, this is our conversation, part one, with Christina Tosin. I am joined today with the great Christina Tosi. Someone I consider family. It's so funny to be sitting across me. I feel like our voices feel so yeah, just professional, so boss. <laughs> I, n- I don't know that I ever thought of you as a radio host when I met you like 15 years ago. It's been a long time. <laughs> family for sure. Family for sure. And I think that's probably what we'll get into a little bit is this sort of family relationship of the When it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it can be really bad. And that's just sort of what family is. And I literally can't imagine anyone else that I have that relationship with other than you and how that's grown over the years. But welcome to LA. Ah, Thank you. I mean, come on with this weather. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you doing in LA? Well, Dave, we're days away from opening the Milk Bar flagship on Melrose in Detroit, just off of La Brea. Are, uh, how terrified are you? Is this is oh, it getting okay. easier or are you like, fuck, this no. is hard? You want to know what? When we were scheduling this, I, I had this moment last week when we were texting to schedule this. And it wasn't until I was in touch with you that I was like, 
Oh my God. The reason I'm not like sleeping, I mean, if you search the Google on my phone, it's like, how do you sleep through the night? How do you not be nauseous? Like I'm going through all these, like, what are all these symptoms that I'm feeling? And it wasn't until I literally started texting you that I was like, oh my God, it's it all over again. 10 years ago, open the first milk bar, just being like nauseous laid out on the ground with like, what is it? It's like stress, it's nerves, it's questioning everything. It's not being sure of anything. And it's, it is painful and beautiful, but I'm in it. I am not sleeping through the night. (laughs) I will smile when I say it to you, but I am not sleeping through the night. I'm great and terrible (laughs) all at once. What's so stressful about this? I mean, it's self-imposed stress more than anything else. I think the stress that I'm feeling right now, if I compared it to the stress that I felt 10 years ago when I opened the first milk bar, it is different, but it's the same. Right now, it's the stress of, I have so much to lose. I have so many more people counting on me, and I have so much more to lose, and I know so much more. So I'm aware. (laughs) I'm aware of all of the nooks and crannies of what could go wrong and more than anything, what's not right, while also trying to talk myself off the ledge of, hey, being perfectly imperfect and being comfortably human is who we are at Milk Bar, but still just being like, what if we open the doors and no one comes? What if we turn on the ovens and like the breaker box blows up and we can't bake any cookies? Just playing the game of what if, what if, what if, but where 10 years ago it was fear of the unknown, 10 years later, right now, it's fear of the known. <laughs> and what do you do about that, right? Like, when if someone that hasn't started their own business or ventured to take a crazy risk like opening up your own business as you have, how do you explain to someone why it gets harder as it's more, in theory, it should get easier? Yeah, in theory, it should get easier. I joke like 10 years ago, I had no clue what I was doing. You saw it. I had no clue. I knew exactly what I was doing and I had no clue what I was doing. And I was worried only about the small things, right? I was worried about like, what if the butter doesn't come in? What if this? What if that? What if we can't bake enough cookies on time? I wasn't worried about like, what are we going to use as the menu? We literally took the top off a stainless steel table and wrote with a dry erase marker as the menu days before, where now it's like, what if the menu doesn't feel the way it should? What if we're not delivering on people's expectations? Expectations. What if we're not delivering on the emotion that people? What do you think the the expectations are for people in LA of Milk Bar? (laughs) Well, that's the other thing. I don't quite know. I know and I don't know in equal parts because LA is like this beautiful, gritty town that's full of anyone and everyone. And so you get New Yorkers that know Milk Bar from New York, and then you get people that are from LA that have never lived in New York, but have been to Milk Bar, have read about Milk Bar, seen Milk Bar. And so how do you be everything to everyone acknowledging that your job should never be to be everything to everyone? It should just be exactly who you are. It's basically just an internal dialogue battle and it's exhausting and beautiful. And also PS, you can say it to your team, but you can't It's not like I can walk into the store and be like, I didn't sleep. (laughs) Hey, everyone, how are you? I didn't sleep last night. I'm so nervous I'm going to hurl because they need to be aware of what we're worried about, but at the same time need to see the confidence in their leader. I mean, you know, I'm looking at you and smiling (laughs) because this is the conversation that we have. Well, that's the thing is these are the conversations I think that people will find fascinating because they never hear it. 
And mm-hmm. I remember reading something Keith McNally said, I think before Augustine opened up uh, a couple years ago, the great restaurateur of Balthazar and Pastis and such. And he sort of nailed it when he said, the pre-opening, the planning stages of a new restaurant concept business is glorious. Everything seems possible. And that's like so addictive that yes. you feel like you can just conquer anything. Any problem is not a problem. It's another thing you can learn from. And then the week before you're supposed to open up, like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> Why are we doing this? <laughs> I'm such a fucking idiot. Why I did I listen nothing. to my gut every time I tell myself I should never do this again? And it's this fucking crazy cycle. And then you get through like six months of the year and you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Maybe I should try it again. It's like you have short-term memory. Yes, it's so true. What I've been saying to myself every night when I go home from the kitchen and the store in the classroom, I like have this moment where sometimes I'm getting so crazy in my old age that I say it out loud to myself in the car. And I'm like, if it were easy, everyone else would do it. It's also part of the insanity of our makeup that makes us addicted to it and gives us this crazy like appetite to do it, this obsession when we're in the planning phase and the ability to be so disgusted with ourselves a week before opening and then the ability to like wash it all clean and do it all over again. Like who is silly enough, dumb enough, crazy enough to have that kind of appetite? And it's like, we are, we are. And that's one of the many things that bonds us together. So this new milk bar, Yes. We'll talk about a lot of different things. What are you doing differently now as Christina Tosi, James Beard award-winning chef, media darling, so on and so (laughs) forth, versus when I met you years ago and you just opened up Milk Bar for the first time? Like, What's different in how you manage and how you view executing your ideas? Oh, that's a loaded question. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I mean, in a funny way, part of what's different is on some level like the spirit of what Milk Bar was 10 years ago. And it's not a desire to retreat back to that. But what this store in LA is, is a like deeper plugging in of the spirit that I opened the original Milk Bar with. The kitchen is there. It's a part of the experience of walking into the store, watching us sweat it out and spread cake batter and stress out and try new things and yell at each other, or maybe not, high-five each other, giving greater visibility to how the universe of the store and the kitchen from raw ingredient to ordering it and being handed it on a napkin is... Like that spirit of connectivity is going to be alive and pumping in LA. And I think that's one thing that I didn't realize over 10 years of growing Milk Bar and figuring out how to model it in a way that was not only sustainable, but a model that we could grow and bring more cookies to the masses with. One thing that we lost along the way not in who we were, but in how we shared who we were with everyone else. Where in New York and in almost all of our DC stores, there's tiny little stores, right? It's like capturing lightning in a bottle, but you are connecting with us, but it's quick, it's quick, it's over. It's here, it's gone. And what you're going to find in that store is 
I think, more of the humanity of what makes Milk Bar Milk Bar. The toils, the troubles, the recipe testing, and that you're going to be able to see it all. You're going to be able to be a part of it and witness it. Or you can just come and grab your compost cookie and head out. But it's also then creating a home that makes sense for us in L.A. Because I've always been adamant, as you know, we always argue about this. The like, what is Milk Bar? What can it be? What should it be? How different should it be? How same should it be? We can never not sell cereal milk ice cream or compost cookies or crack pie. I would be like hung out to dry. But how do we also celebrate what we stand for, which is creativity and innovation and pushing boundaries, <laughs> but not have barbecue soft serve on the menu, right? Like, how do we do all of those things? And LA, our LA flagship is like my most recent understanding of that while also like celebrating what's so lovely about being in a warm, sunny city. I can't wait to see it. I haven't even been to the location yet, so I'm going to do that very soon, probably after this with you. You brought up something I think that is a good segue into some of the more biographical things that we should go over. Barbecue ice cream. Yeah. Barbecue soft serve. It so, was so good. You hated what, 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 it so what, 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 much. <laughs> can, you explain, explain, can you explain how that happened and when that happened? Yeah. So this is probably nine years ago. We only had the East Village Milk Bar. We had our kitchen there. We had our store there. That was it. That was who we were. That was our tiny universe. And we called it Milk Bar because we wanted it to be like a modern-day riff on a Dairy Queen. We had two soft-serve machines, four flavors, and every month we would change the soft-serve flavors so that they would rotate around a theme that we were particularly inspired by. For Thanksgiving, we did a variety of different soft-serve flavors, including stuffing soft-serve, which falls into the same category as barbecue soft-serve, which came out when it was like summertime and we were celebrating through our no holds barred lens of celebrating all of the great flavors that you would find at a barbecue and this sort of like sweet tangy not super spicy at all flavor whipped up into a soft serve ice cream was for me, this like monthly pursuit of four flavors that made sense and then nailing the four flavors so that they translated what we had in our mind. They actually translated into flavors. And you were so right in giving me the hardest time because Milk Bar at that point, we were beloved. There were lines out the door But we had no clue what we knew everything that we were doing and had no clue what we were doing. And we just loved being creative. That was it. That's what we were there for. And we didn't quite understand what we had done, what we had done in the world, what we had done in the world of dessert. And you came in one day just guns blazing, just ripping on me about this barbecue soft serve because as an operator, it had never occurred to me that I had a flavor of soft serve on that not a single person had ever purchased. Everyone got a sample of it. They tasted it and they were like, hmm, that's great. I'll have the cereal milk, please. And I knew this, but this is where a lot of our battles would happen and still do to a lesser degree. I learned early on because I think if someone is going to be more stubborn than me, I immediately think of you. You beat me on stubbornness (laughs) to a point that is unbelievable. In the best possible way. And I remember that vividly being like, I am giving my most lucid arguments as to why I'm glad that it tastes like barbecue, but is it good? Is it good for someone to taste? Whatever I said, all I remember was, 
every time I give you a reasoning, that was more reason for you not to fucking take it off. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. In a beautiful way, like in a beautiful sibling way, in a beautiful creative way. I remember you giving me like the Beyonce talk of, listen, you're Destiny's child right now. Like you are not Beyonce. Like you need to slow your roll, sister. Like you need to pave the way and earn the trust and give people the chance to really bond with what you mean and what you stand for and your flavors and your textures and this crazy creative mind. Barbecue soft serve comes when you're Beyonce and you are a freaking <laughs> Destiny's child. And I mean, that also, I think, just like celebrates what makes you so perfectly you that I think most people that don't get to have as close of a relationship with you as I do don't get is how freaking well-read you are and how plugged in you are, even though you also are so hell-bent on living in your own world. The ability for you to make that uh, <laughs> parallel in the moment off the cuff is the secret to why you are who you are. And I'm why so sorry so for powerful. everyone that knows me. That's like, not anyone I would know, like that. that. Was my, that's my favorite Dave Chang embarrassing story. <laughs> um, but I think what you just explained is a very important topic to talk about was as a young chef, mm. because you don't know any better and you're learning, can you describe what it's like to put a creation together and not have enough wisdom or empathy? Mm. Not that you won't, but mm -hmm. you're at, at a stage in your career where you're still, everything's new and possible. Yeah. How do you explain that moment when you're like, I'm just going to do it? Fuck it. Yeah. It's tricky. It's a few different parts, right? One is you've made someone else's food. You've soldiered for someone else for so long. This is your first chance to have a voice. And typically what happens is you have your chance to have a voice. And like some of the things that come out of your mouth or come out of your proverbial mouth on the plate are things that people connect with and get. And you start to hear people get excited about what you're making, what your voice sounds like through food. And all of a sudden you start to go like, yeah, totally. I get it. I got it. I've been doing this for so long for other people. This is, I got it. This is my turn. And you come up with ideas. You start to formulate what your process is and what you stand for and what your style is and how you piece together a great dish, whether it's through texture or memory or how you're pairing flavors together and why they make sense. But the editing process can be a very tricky one because <laughs> I think to be really successful in this field, you have to be a visionary. You have to know who you are and what makes sense to your view of food. Otherwise, you're just like everyone else and you might be hot for a moment, but you're not really going to have the legs to last because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to too many people. But the editing process, I think, is the hardest one to learn when it's your own vision and you also need to be the one to edit yourself because that's a serious real talk and you don't learn it right away. It's something that you underestimate the amount of time in the process of learning. Do you think that you can do something great without risking absolute failure, right? Like to do something in any field, we'll just, again, we're talking about food. When you come up with a dish— you sort of need to separate yourself from reality yes. and live your own solipsistic world. Yes. It's very solitary. <laughs> yeah. And you have to sort of roll the dice. Like the truly great shit that you're going to be excited about that's going to inspire the people that work for you, the younger cooks that are now like, I want to drink what Christina Tosi's drinking. 
you sometimes, at least from me and watching your career, you have to just be fearless and believe that I'm not even going to think about the negatives, Mm -hmm. which is problematic because when it does fucking suck, it hurts so much more. You just got to believe it's going to work. Yeah. And because of your insistence that all your ideas were going to work, I knew that like that was the only way you were ever going to learn is by fucking it up. Like I know just talking to you, hey, Christina, you shouldn't make this turn here because bad things might happen. You're like, well, fuck you. Don't don't fucking ever tell me what I'm going to fucking experience, motherfucker. And I know that's what's going through your head. I'm going to experience also, on my own. I'm tougher than you. <laughs> yeah. So whatever might be scary to you isn't even going to phase me. <laughs> so that how do you so teach how do you process. teach that to the people that now work for you? They're like how do you teach them to make the right kind of mistake and not be um conservative? Yeah. Cuz that's nothing nothing your how food you is never conservative. How do you teach people to take risks, yeah. right? I think that <sighs> Because now you have multi units, you're all over the country now or going to be how do you make sure your culture, your decision-making, not gets replicated, but they think like you? Who you are and how you make your company, I've always said is, like any great company, is like creating a constitution. Yeah. You cannot be everywhere at once. What is it that you're working on to let people know, like, I want to challenge the status quo. I want to take something that's a horrible idea. You are you because you've been, like, willing to fucking fall on your face. How do you—and this is what I go through, and I'm just— mm-hmm. How do you make sure that people learn that without helicopter parenting or spoon feeding them? Yeah. Well, I'd say it in two parts. Part one of it for me, I think, goes back to conversations that we've had over the years. And it even goes back to like some pretty specific lenses that I learned from working for Wiley. And that's like, will you stand behind it? I think the thing that I always learned from you was— will you stand behind this? Like, will you stand behind this dish? Are your reasons for why it's important, why it's inspired, why it's relevant, why this is here and that is there, why this flavor is more intense and the other is more mellow is, like, will you stand behind it? Can you actually vocalize why you believe in it? Not necessarily why it makes sense, but why you believe in it and why you believe it has a place And then I think the other part of how do you fold it into culture now more than ever before is figuring out new and better ways to communicate it across the board. Because now we're dealing with like companies that are not just cooks, where it's like easier to know how to communicate with cooks. But how do you learn how to communicate it to your marketing team or to your human resources team or what have you? And what I always start with is, listen, we are an outside of the box bakery. When everyone zigs, we zag. You need to be a person with your eyes open in the world and bring me a creative, clever idea. I'm not, we're not here to make chocolate chip cookies. There's nothing wrong with the chocolate chip cookie, but that's not what we do. So how you're thinking, how you're operating, how you're devising needs to be more dynamic than that. And take risks. It is inevitably comes down to like, how do you reward your team for taking risks? Even if the risk they're taking means that they're going to fall flat on their face or that you're going to go along with them and you're all going to fall flat on your face. And it's teaching them to be as fearless as possible. And I don't know that I exactly have the answer to it, but I think knowing at least that much of it gives me the motivation every day to go in and be a pushy, 
pushy, pushy son of a gun at work and knowing like, I'm going to get off this call right now and everyone's going to hate me. But you want to know what? In like a year, they're going to love me and they'll see and they'll get it and being confident in the pursuit of that, I guess. Because it's, again, a very solitary thing. How do you push people out of their comfort zone? No one wants to be pushed out of their comfort zone. And the comfort zone is a place that I have seen this for as long as I've known you. It's a place that you really don't like being no. in. Let's get uncomfortable. That's what I like saying. And everyone rolls their eyes at me. Let's get uncomfortable. You are not going to succeed at Milk Bar if you like being comfortable. This is not the place for you. But the discomfort is at the end of the day what makes me like go home and feel really happy because it's the pursuit of wanting to feel comfortable in an uncomfortable position that I know makes me better and makes us better. And you like making people uncomfortable, which is why, <laughs> which is why. <laughs> Hashtag family. Yeah. It's been a, a lot. We've gone through so much. Comfortable is boring. Regular is boring. Normal is boring. What for? Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experiences for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. We use it at our restaurants to hire great people all the time. So should you. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Day Chang Show is also brought to you by Le Creuset. As a chef, we always talk about sourcing the best quality ingredients and knowing your suppliers, but using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories it creates and the style it expresses. They are the first to introduce color to the kitchen and are pioneers in enamel cast iron, which feature the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. All cast iron is made in France since 1925 in the original French foundry, and each piece of cast iron is touched by 15 pairs of craftsman hands. Heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty. Bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. I love Le Creuset. It is genuinely one of the things I use in my home kitchen and my professional kitchen. We have them at Major Domo here in LA. If something hits your table and it's a pot, it is a Le Creuset pot. That's how much we like it. It's something that you can not only use for different kinds of cooking techniques. It's sturdy. It's beautiful. It's also something that is great to serve in. 
I could not recommend Le Creuset more. I know that this is a sponsor, but this is my genuine endorsement. It's something I tell people to buy all the time when they say, I need something at home. What should I buy? Not only does it cook well, it looks great. Check out the new color from Le Creuset, just launched in September. Indigo is the truest blue, inspired by the iconic natural dye. The rich, deep hue of Le Creuset's indigo is universally authentic, a timeless true blue and a bold neutral in style and cultures around the world. We also have this at uh, Major Dome. I'm not trying to like pair this up. It's just the reality. It's an awesome color. It really pops. I love it. Get free shipping at lecrusade.com slash Dave with promo code Dave. That's lecrusade.com slash Dave, promo code Dave. And now back to the show. Shifting gears a little bit. Your story is well known. Lots of books, Netflix, Chef's Table episode, which was great, and MasterChef. There's a lot of articles written about you. The story, I think, is well known. And if you haven't and you don't understand how she's gotten to where she is, there's plenty of material out there. And I highly encourage you guys to go down that rabbit hole. What is it that you think has not been covered that people don't know? That's a good question. I think that the thing that is often not celebrated for anyone me, you, like the people that we know closest is the stuff that's not exciting on paper. It's like the everything that happens on the days that are hard and uncomfortable or that are seemingly normal and that it takes a really long time to build what we've built or to figure out what we've figured out. It takes a network of a, probably a small network of people you're willing to trust it's a lot of tears. It's a lot of sweating. It's a lot of vomiting. <laughs> it's a lot of dizzying. But the secret to it all is sticking with it. And none of it's like none of it. We wouldn't be interested in doing it if it were easy. But I guess it's the things that haven't been covered are like the grueling moments that no one's interested in hearing about which is like every other day except for opening day or every other day except for opening week or every other day that you're not being recognized, you don't have a award, none of which are actually how I measure success anyways. Like for me, success is going home at night and being like, did I do a good job? It's We talked about it 12 years ago maybe, like how weird it is to be a boss after you figure out how to be a great cook where you know the measure of your success is like, did I get my prep list done? Did I get it done? Did I crush it? Did I get it done faster today than I did yesterday? What is your measure of getting your prep list done or crushing service? <laughs> like, how do you measure that? We're so conditioned to that being our measure and how do you measure it? And my measure at the end of the day is like, did I do a good job? And a good job for me is like, was I a good person in the world today? Did I do something that actually challenged me that challenged someone else that left a little bit of an impact in the world that made it better not in a way that's measured on any other level and I think that's probably the most unspoken part of my world and our industry at large is for most of us what our measure is and what our day is like when no one else is looking what was your day like when you were a freshly minted FCI graduate. Okay. So I'd moved to New York 
enrolled in culinary school. I found an apartment that was four blocks away so that I wouldn't have to pay for transportation. I'd walk over there. And then I basically begged my way into a job working the front of house at a restaurant on Spring Street and 6th Avenue. And so Aqua Grill. Aqua Grill. So as a freshly minted graduate, so I had been there for six months. I had made my way up to Maitre D at Aqua Grill. I was working at Boulay at night. And then on my one night off, I would work at Aqua Grill. I was living like my best and happiest life. I was thinking about it the other day. Actually, I was like, I lived on the sixth floor of a six-story walk-up, and I'd leave my house at like 7 a.m. every morning. I'd run down the stairs, and I would walk to Aqua Grill, and I'd take reservations. I'd do all the morning stuff. Or if it was a boulet, I would walk down to Tribeca and put on my like oversized chef coat and oversized checker pants and I'd take a like swath of saran wrap and that would be my belt and I put on like a crazy old lady head scarf of my grandma's in my hair and it was just me and that prep list and anything that needed to be done and I remember just being blissfully happy and I would do you do that until two three four in the morning you come home you're exhausted you crawl into bed these are some of the things that Definitely don't get covered in the media that you've been in, in the sense of why the fuck did you choose Boulay? Of all the restaurants, mm. what was it about Boulay? David Boulay's restaurant, mm. right? And yep. there's a lot of, actually, fucking almost no cook even understands the significance of him. Yeah. And he's probably on the top three most important, most talented American chefs ever, controversial figure. Mm-hmm. But he's probably developed more chefs of a certain caliber than any other chef. And arguably one of the great sauciers and saw ahead of the curve both in Japanese food and French food. And he had a variety of restaurants down in Tribeca. Yeah. But you were at like the second or third iteration of it. I was. I was at the tail end of like its greatness before it really fell. I had done my research. I mean, I moved to New York to do one thing, and it was to become a pastry chef. And you know me, I'm not going to just become a pastry chef. I'm going to try and become the best pastry chef that has ever existed on my own terms. And I had done my research, and I knew that Boulay was a four-star restaurant, a four-star New York Times restaurant, which meant it was at the top of its game. I knew that Boulay was an American chef that had a variety of international influences, And I knew that he was controversial, i.e. I knew that I was going to need, if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it in the hardest restaurant I could find to work in. And inevitably, that meant that I did it for free for as long as it took until they started paying me, until they saw value in me and I saw value in myself. And I don't say that in like a self-deprecating way. I just say that in like, that is how it worked back then. What made it so hard? It's so hard to explain to people today what made it so difficult. When you have a fine dining restaurant of that level in New York, at least back then, you're always understaffed. There's never enough people to help make it as great as the expectation is when you're in service. The resources, aside from the labor end of things. The resources are never strong, right? Like it is basically like a swan (laughs) above water and underneath just chaos of kicking and screaming. 
not only that, it was the type of kitchen that was incredibly competitive because that's what fine dining was. Every single cook wanted to prove every single day that they were the best and that everyone else sucked. That was the kitchen culture. And so not only did you not have the resource, you also didn't have the support. Not every single person was in theory your teammate and not a single person was rooting for you. And so it was the most like stripped down, bony, like bloodied knuckle approach to working in a kitchen. And I loved it. It was like a (laughs) war zone every day. There's no locker room. No one cares about what size you are and whether you have a uniform. You had to, like, I remember I would hide things. Like there was only two spatulas because this is what made every cook better. Like at least from a theoretical standpoint, right? Why would a guy that had one of the best restaurants in New York City leave his team with so little resource. And part of it is the theory of because it's going to make you bigger, stronger, and faster, right? It's going to keep you fucking hungry. It's going to keep you hungry. And there were two rubber spatulas. There were two rondos. And once you get really good at the job, you start to realize, like, I know I'm going to need six flats of eggs. You're in your mind before you go to bed the night before. I know what my battle looks like tomorrow. And you start plotting out how you are going to screw in theory, in order for you to survive, what that's going it's to survivor. Take. It's Survivor. It, it, it really is. <laughs> yes. And although I didn't work at Boulay, I know stories and how difficult it was. And what I'm trying to understand after all of those years later, is it necessary anymore? Oh. Right? That kind— Listen, like what flew by then just would never happen today. But I wonder for the next generation of chefs— Going through that crucible, is it necessary? And I can't answer that. I don't have a a solution. Like, obviously, you can be nostalgic and be like, that's how we did it. But the reality is, if you think about it, how stupid is that? I mean, it's for sure stupid on some level. I think for those of us that have been through it, like the masochism of it also comes with this crazy, beautiful romance because— you're proving it to yourself. Like you're checking your passion and you're checking your pursuit because every day is like, are you sure you mean it? And you have to look yourself in the mirror and be like, I can mean it. Let's do this. I will say that if I think about that time and what how I had to learn to survive to be successful there, and then I think about what year one, year two, even now year 10 of Milk Bar, my ability to hustle and change to get intense feedback and to be able to be like, let it in, digest it, let it out, bandage up, get back out there and keep kicking. I would be slower to adjust. I would have been slower to be able to adjust to everything. Like I remember the day Anderson Cooper went on Regis and Kelly and started talking about crack pie. And I woke up and I was like, what the heck is going on? And people from all over the country are trying to get crack pie shipped to them. If I hadn't gone through that, I would have been like, okay, well, we're going to set that up one day. I freaking like went to every Dwayne Reed. I got every one of those like um, <laughs> like break and freeze ice packs. I went to every UPS store and got every cardboard box. It was like it trained me to be ripe for every single challenge and to know that every day should come with a challenge. And I would hesitate to want to learn that while doing it within the walls of my own business. It made me sharper. Is it necessary? Probably not. But I also think that the tools that I gathered there made me all the better when I actually 
when I had my own like name in the field and I was fighting for that. I don't want to learn how to fight when I <laughs> when that's the case. I want to be conditioned and trained. And that's exactly how I feel too. I I know there's got to be a better way. I don't know if I'm equipped to do it or I figured it out yet, but what you go through when you go through an intense kitchen where it's about survival oftentimes, it teaches you there's another fucking gear. <laughs> Actually, there's like 10 more yeah. gears that you didn't even know exist. And it's a lot like when you are training for something or a marathon, which I've not run, but other sports where you're like, I'm never going to get there. And you only get there through failure, through yeah. complete and utter exhaustion. And then you try to find time to reflect and do it all over again. Yeah. And it's that repetition that never gets spoken about in our industry anymore yeah. because it's so glamorous, but you only get there by doing it over and fucking over again. It's muscle memory or like whatever the equivalent of emotional muscle memory is. I was raised to be a good student. And so on some level, I had book smarts when I moved to New York City. I had never felt more dumb before in my life because I didn't really have street smarts. And working in a kitchen, it develops street smarts. It makes you into a cunning person. And unless you grew up with access to those kind of street smarts, there is no way you were ever— I think to be a great entrepreneur, you got to be cunning as all get out. And I was neither one of those things. And culinary school was not going to teach that to me. And I'm sure I could have and would have learned it along the way. But the street smarts end of it and learning to be cunning were two things that— Again, like, I don't know where I would have been if I didn't Because you can't that. recreate these situations. And I'm really struggling myself to figure out how do you replicate this without the mental trauma of going through it. And, you know, when you say street smarts, I'm trying to unpack that because to me, and you know me, I think a lot of it is you're being put into so many shitty situations that are almost impossible to imagine a positive outcome that you get sort of accustomed to the fact that anything and everything might happen. Most often than not, it's going to be bad. You, <laughs> you have to prepare for the worst all the fucking time. Yes. And that's real shit because it the reality is. is when you work in a kitchen, you see everything and everything. Like, there's nothing that surprises you after a while. No. And, and there's no hiding from any of it. There's no ego. For as much ego as there is, the hilarity is there's also no ego because one second you're up and the next second you could be down. And it is like a crash course in all of the things you might ever go through in life. And I don't know. I guess I'm proud about it. And so I live in the like, I wouldn't trade it for a thing. And I would offer it up to or encourage anyone to do it because it also proves to you what you're made of. There are so many people that went through the Boulay kitchen, that went through the Danielle kitchen system that you went through. There are so many people who couldn't hack it, who were not made of what we are made of, some of which are also actually successful And they're very chefs. successful. And again, I've thought about this a lot. I don't think that they were not weak. I think that they were smart <laughs> true. Well, true okay. Really, it's like, what's my return on investment on this? Why would I continue to do this? This doesn't make any sense yeah. anymore. I don't need someone to give me validation. I know exactly what it was and what I need to do. And I'm trying to unpack all that shit. Mm -hmm. And I know that you are as well because it's like we have many younger cooks and staff that are trying to figure out on their own too. And 
There's got to be a better way. I don't have the answer yet. Our kitchen cultures are so different yeah. than what they were five years ago, definitely 10 years ago. They're more gentle, and I don't mean that in a, a lesser way. They just—I think we're smarter about how we adapt those messages but so that you, they're heard how better do you teach, and louder. How do you teach something? And this sort of refers back to a question I asked earlier— the thing that I feel like you learned at a kitchen like Boulay is the like concept of make it fucking happen. Yeah. Right? Like every day is make it fucking happen. Yes. You know, you're paranoid about something. And then when you actually do some research and you understand the the gravity and amount of mise en place that's on your fucking station to do, yes. your initial reaction is like, that's impossible. <laughs> How am I going to do— 10 quarts of Brunois apple, like, in 30 minutes. P.S. When you go to, like, take the one bathroom break, your person next to you is going to come by and throw all of your music. Yeah, and they're going to sabotage the fucking shit out of you, right? Like, it's like the Spartan work ethic that is crazy, but I don't know if you can recreate that because it was so instrumental to me to understand that, like, I understand that this is impossible and I have to fucking suspend rational thought and make it fucking happen. But okay, so here's my question to that. Doesn't that make you a better creator and creative? Because you learn part of that trauma also teaches you how to suspend disbelief and how to believe in the thing that you in your right mind would say, like, that's not possible. Doesn't it teach you to remove all boundaries to be like, hey, man, whatever it takes, I'll get it done. Or whatever it takes, if I can dream it, I can do it. When thinking of a dish, right? You're not going like, well, that would be crazy. Who would be here for that? It teaches you to not have, to not give yourself the time to process that. Yes, completely agree. I'm just at a point now where I'm trying to figure out, are there other ways to replicate that without Mm -hmm. causing the same shit to go on? Because (laughs) that's a fucking hard way to work, man. And I can think about it nostalgically, but when I was in it, I was like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. I fucking hate we, this. Well, we I fucking so hate that, that motherfucker. We, yeah, we weren't so dumb that we couldn't see what was going on, right? So why did we stay in it as opposed to get out of it? There's Nostalgia is a weird thing. It is. But there's another part of it where I, where I look back and I go, I wonder also, like, did it turn us into drama queens? 100%. We learned from <laughs> watching how it was done, right? Yes. And, and like— that is a very important thing, and I think that's what our industry is going through right now is a period of reflection to be like, is that necessary, yeah. and can we make that better? So I don't know. Like, It's crucial that the future of our industry has people that will still take risks, that will not have an excuse, that will see a set of problems and be like, I'm going to fucking own this, yep. and I don't give a fuck. I'm going to make the impossible happen. I just have yet to come to a conclusion to talking to you or to many other people that are in this industry. How do you replicate that without the fucking trauma of it all, right? Like the intense feeling of dread. Every day you wake up, you're like, ugh. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. It's character building. Is it necessary? Or how do you replicate the good while removing the bad? There's no answer to it. No. And I, I I don't know, but that's why it's this is just the place where I'm at. I I've, <laughs> I've gone through past the nostalgia part of like that was sort of cool too. I'm like, I don't uh, fucking know. Was <laughs> yeah, was it? Was missing everything else in life to get you yelled were at and screamed at. Yeah, and you were, people when I try to explain <laughs> to people that are like not of the industry, when you say 
you're taught to sacrifice everything. 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 People don't understand that's not hyperbole. No, everything. I mean, for 10 years of working in like the basement pastry kitchens in New York City, you're taught that, I mean, even conceiving of needing a day off, like what do you have this job for if you need a day off? Like that's not what this job is. This job is you are here any moment, every moment that's needed. If you like think your sister's getting married or there's some life event that somehow would be more meaningful than you coming to work and (laughs) chopping or setting or whipping or working service— you must be out of your goddamn mind. Yeah. Like, absolutely not. And if you ever did dare to ask, which, by the way, I never did, I mean, you're just weak. You're weak and, like, you're out. You're out of the inner circle of people that actually have a chance at survival. Like, you're dead in the water because you're the weakling. You're the weak. And you become ostracized. And that's the dichotomy that I'm trying to, like, hold in my head as there are positives, obviously, to how we were taught. But does it outweigh the negatives? And there's got to be an alternative. I don't know, right? Because yeah. I've seen too many fucking broken people. I was one of them along the way, right? Yeah. And this whole industry has to fucking change. Yeah. I mean, it comes with balance, though. One of the biggest things when I opened Milk Bar was, you know, the one thing I know I'm going to ask the world of the people that come and work for me. But the one thing that I want to make sure we are never we're a team of all in people, but I never want to be the place that you feel ashamed about asking for a life outside of work. When you are at work, you are at work. You are with us and you are in it. But if you need the day off, if you have this, if you have that, as long as your contribution, as long as you're still pulling your weight, there is no reason why you can't go out and have it all. But even in making that a very basic core value, Early on, people didn't take advantage of it, but now people just take it for granted. And so there is a flip and a flop to it. Like, how do you not damage people, but at the same time, how do you also ensure— Push people out of the comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it it's just, this is real that. fucking hard. And I keep on thinking, like, in the four and a half years I worked for other chefs, I never took vacation day. Not one. Uh, I never ever. missed a day of work. Uh-uh. uh-uh. <laughs> when I think about that, I'm like, fuck, man. And you know why I didn't take a day off? I can't let someone else cover my station and then they're going to have to work double hours and the chef's going to be pissed off at me. And, you know, it was that like that responsibility thing that I'm like, fuck, man, I don't know if it prepared me to enjoy anything about cooking. (laughs) That's a really good point. It's like that insane sense of duty that then actually came above anything and everything else, including your love of food. Because when you're in it like that, It's not actually about loving food at that point. You just love the pursuit of the sense of duty. You just love the competition of it. How much of it were you doing because you were like, I love food and the art of cooking so, 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 so much. And how much of it was loving to be a part of this gritty ass tribe that would never accept anyone else? Yeah, absolutely. And like there was something at the time that was so bro-y about it that was like, oh, this is like, Something I understand. Yes. And like, and I'm saying yes is like the freaking female that was in it that was like, I loved growing out. <laughs> I loved it because I, I could prove to myself that it was like, yo, I can assimilate to anything. Right. To anything and anything. And you are, without a doubt, one of the most fearless 
you're never going to move me off my fucking track, people I've ever met, <laughs> particularly in a kitchen. Like, I dare anyone to get in your fucking way when you have a full head of steam. Oh. And what I mean by a full head of steam is like, I have an idea. I'm going to fucking do it. And along the way, not only am I going to do this idea, I'm going to do your fucking job better. And you motherfucker <laughs> over there that's really slow, I've already done your mise en place. And I fill out your ordering over there, and I cleaned up your station yeah. over here. I'm fucking more. better than all you motherfuckers. <laughs> more, more, more. And that's more. who you are. And I was like, oh, my God, she is fucking unbelievable. She's so fucking good at her job. I think it's just the desire. It's more. It's like the desire to, like, more. Break me. I dare you. Break me. I dare you. Give me more. Break me. I dare you. That for me is if I strip it all down, it's the pursuit of like getting to know myself and being like, what is my limit? This what is my limit? I can still take this that. Is, this I can is, carry that. You want a piggyback ride right now? I'll give you a piggyback ride while I'm making this chocolate souffle while I'm. This is not something Christina would do, right? And this is me lovingly portraying her in, in the best possible way if this can make sense. So, so please understand this analogy. Her fiercely competitive nature is so great that if she was one of the kids on MasterChef or one of your contestants, I know you, right? You wouldn't do this, but I can like know the well of competitiveness. And simultaneously, you are also someone that's so loving that it would pain you to see someone that like get voted off or something that you would be like, you and you and you like, oh, I came in four hours earlier. I already made your dish for you. Yeah, I made actually everyone's <laughs> Everything. dish for them. And uh, we're all going to get in this together. So we're all good, okay? <laughs> and like, who did that? this? Who turned off my oven? <laughs> I did because I can't see you fuck it up anymore. But I, I really love you and I respect you and I want you to move forward. And not only did I make your dish, I made a video of how I did it. Here's a detailed recipe <laughs> and here's a history of all the ingredients. So go home and study this. So... It looks like by tomorrow you know how to make this. Like you would be the best reality it's chef like contestant a, it's ever. It's like a series of contradictions, <laughs> and also in a way of like I'm holding my head in my hand because I'm like I am just setting myself up for failure in the world. I remember the day that you came to me. I was being intense about something and you saw me and you were like, you have to stop. And I was like, what do you mean? Like one, don't ever tell, <laughs> don't ever tell me to stop. And two, you said something to the extent of stop treating everyone like yourself. I don't know if you figured it out by now, but you can't manage people like they're all versions of you because that's not what you have and that's not what you're going to find. Like, it was kind of like when you started to realize the very beginning of this entire conversation, which is like, how do you do it knowing that <laughs> it's maybe dumb to expect, but also that people just aren't made that way. Right. And I think that was the first time that I was like, in my head, I had never conceived of the fact of like, wait, what do you mean? You don't think everyone else here is capable of these one zillion things? And you're like, no, and I don't mean that because I don't think they're all amazing and incredibly talented, but you have to stop trying to create a universe where you have a bunch of versions of yourself working for you. I think and the natural it never default, occurred to yeah, me. Yeah, is to build everything in your own image, right? Literally. I mean, that's not just us. Like, literally, if you, like, read Genesis, God created man in his own image. That's mm. just an allegory almost, but— I think that's only natural. And what I've seen with you and particularly with myself and as our conversation has changed over the years, to me, at least when I came to that realization, I was like, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> oh, yeah, fuck. Ditto. I was like, oh, 
Oh. Oh, man. Oh. Like, I'm so dumb. Everything I've been doing that I thought was right is wrong. Fuck. Yeah. And they're all, everyone that is soldiering for you is looking at you every day like, I hate you. I love you. I'm here. I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm not going to do it the way you want. I'm not going to do it as well as you want me to do it. And that's what's so hard. And I feel like a lot of our relationship over the years has been, hey, Tosi, I just fucked this up. And I just realized something like uh, sort of an epiphany. Here, I got to download it to you. Yes. Just so you don't make the same mistake. And that's when I was like, shit, like she's just, number one, can't tell you anything not to do because you're going to do it anyway. (laughs) But two... I was also, because I realized my own mistake, my correction was also a mistake by yeah. trying to share it with everyone else so you don't make it. Yeah. And that's when I realized, like, you just got to fuck it up, man. And you bet on the person. You bet that, like, I know Christina Tosi, as fucking hard as nails as you are, you are incredibly compassionate, thoughtful. You are one of the best friends, best sisters and daughters. And you are morally, like, and I know this, you have a moral compass that is second to none. So- that doesn't prevent you from making mistakes or making foolish decisions. But I had to learn to be patient mm. to realize that, like, you're going to figure it out. You yeah. just figure the shit out. I feel like that's where our relationship is now. I mean, I would, in a really beautiful way, say the same thing about you. I think that the thing that most people don't ever get to see is how vast your heart is and how— strong your moral compass is. I think those are the things that when I think about our relationship, I'm like, I know this person. I have known this person through so many different things. And my loyalty will always belong in your life, always, forever. Thank and you. the interesting part of our relationship now what is you're not like, seeing is I just slid Tosi a $100 bill in the <laughs> Cha-ching. Um, Our relationship has evolved in a really interesting way because of the things we've been through in life professionally and personally, but also like in a steady way. I'm also learning like, oh, my God, I have so much to learn and that you are the person that I often learn the most from. One, because you're always willing to be so open. And two, because I know you're always going to give it to me raw. Like, you are not sugarcoating a goddamn thing for And me. that's what we learned. We we, we, we really, <laughs> man, we have gone through so much. And it's genuinely a family-sister brother relationship. And when we fight, it is fucking World War Three. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Fuck you. I'm never talking yeah. to you again. <laughs> Type of shit, man. And yeah. and we mean it in the moment. <laughs> yeah. <for> the record. <laughs> it's really incredibly two stubborn assholes going at it. And, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe it was three years ago, I said something fucking horrible and I meant it and I was so fucking pissed. And I think we had to have someone intervene. <laughs> <laughs> and they told me how you felt. And it dawned on me, I was like, oh, man. I am such an idiot again. Like I am thinking that she wants to hear things how I want it to be heard. <laughs> you know, it's like fucking dumbass. That's like communication 101. Yeah. But, but we grew up in kitchens where it's like what you learn to never do in a kitchen is how to communicate beyond just the yeah. brass tap. But and you were like, listen, like 
I'm not fucking 28 years old anymore, <laughs> right? And I have my own opinions and I'm fucking my own boss. And like, you're not disrespecting me, but like, I want to hear things a certain way and I fucking deserve it. And I was like, fuck, another <laughs> eureka moment. I was like, oh, I'm so dumb. Uh, <laughs> I could have communicated this. It would have been no drama had I just been like, hey, Christina, these are some objective facts. You're a mathematician by training <laughs> and I'm giving you my subjective fucking perspective on things and I'm like fuck uh, I need to just lay out the facts and here it is that's the only thing I can do we become soft in our old days yeah we I have think. become soft but I man like, I like that I would ever propose to like hey Dave how I would prefer <laughs> that you give me feedback is by saying hey Christina can I give you some feedback and wait for an invitation I mean like but that's that's a relationship it is yeah. and the 20 year old version of ourselves are probably like laughing hysterically at us but that's the beauty of it. So that was the first part of my conversation with Chef Christina Tosi of Milk Bar. I hope you enjoyed it. We get a little bit deeper into our relationship and her goals for Milk Bar in the next episode. So stay tuned. That's going to come out tomorrow. Give us a five-star rating on however you rate us or Bill Simmons will fire me. Bye.